The Creek Church is a community of believers located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you would like more information about the Creek Church, please be sure to visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Well, this is amazing. I mean, the last time I was here, we were in the um, in the daycare center, and, and guys, this facility is just awesome. And and the praise band, what an incredible job. Um, the screen. I love it. I asked him, can I use all of it to kind of display stuff? And I'd like to take this with me uh, back to Toronto. I, I think it'd be a little awkward in my living room, but, I, you know, it's just great. But I, I wanted to show you some of this. Uh, my wife and I, Aaron, we, we live in Toronto with our son and daughter. Uh, Sophia is our eldest. Elias is our son. And then we're expecting uh, a child in October 5th, and that's baby Lucy. So she's about seven and a half months pregnant. And we, we've been living there in Toronto for a while. And I remember last time that I got to uh, speak to you, I was having to explain how a beautiful, sophisticated city like Toronto could elect Rob Ford as their mayor. And uh, you guys kind of made fun of me for that. But it seems like the tables are turned because now I'm here, and apparently uh, Donald Trump is leading in the polls. And uh, so you have some explaining to do now, right? Um, Maybe we'll just file that under the, uh, it's anything would be an improvement category, right? And, uh, but this is our work. This is our life. Um, these are scenes from home. These are scenes from our campus, from our community, um, from church. And I, I wanted you to just see these because uh, every single one of these um, has been touched by your support. And, and I thank you for that. I work for the International Mission Board. They take care of our salary and different things like that. But all of our projects that we do, we, we don't have any budget for, and that's where uh, your gifts really help. You've come in and really helped us do some neat things. So I want to show you the next slide, too. Um, it shows our pastor who we've been working with lately. We're working on our fourth church plant in Toronto, and, um, and this is Case Van Balasingham. And uh, Case Van's got an amazing story. He's, uh, just to put it bluntly, he, he was convicted of murder when he was 20. And uh, he was involved in a shooting. He actually didn't kill the person involved, but because he was involved... Um, they said, we want to convict you of murder and we want to give you a life sentence with the possibility of parole um, after 10 years if you accept the deal. And so he did. And he became a Christian uh, in while he, during his sentencing, actually. And he was discipled all throughout prison. And uh, in the first day he was eligible for parole after 10 years, they released him. And it was on a Tuesday. And the neat story is that since he had been discipled, his entire time in prison, on, he walked out of prison on a Tuesday, and on Wednesday, he was sitting in a seminary class training to become a pastor because he felt God's call in his life. And he's an amazing man with an, a, a beautiful family now, and um, we're working on Fellowship Church Rouge Park together, and, and uh, I pray that you just um, continue to think of him in these next few months. We've, we've been there for about four months now. We're open. We have about 50 people. We're meeting meeting in a public space, you know, sound familiar to you guys too? Yeah, you guys know the story. So um, this is our life. And, and listen, just wanted to take a little time to say our philosophy when we do minister in the next slide is just to get people kind of telling us, where are you on one of these stages? Are you not curious about Jesus? Are you curious? Are you believing? Are you following? Are you helping others follow? Are you serving all of your life? You know, we ask them, where are you? And when they tell us where they are, then we start to get growth plans for them. The next slide will just show you some of our growth plans um, that we've got for people in, in different stages. And we, we just disciple them, and we, we try to get them to take the next step in faith. And the way that we find a lot of these people is we invite them over for dinner. I'll show you the next slide. We have an every other week dinner 
where we ask these questions as we eat. Are you suffering? Are you celebrating? Are you sinning? Are you sicker in need? We ask all those questions as we eat, and we get into these great conversations, and then we create these placemats to talk about. Um, so they're right under our plates. We take out our plates, and we discuss some biblical truths together. And, and the reason I'm telling you that is because each one of these placemats represents a meal that we've had in my home. And you guys have paid for every single one of those meals. And I appreciate that so much. Um, we do it every other week. We've been doing it for about a year and a half. And you guys have funded the times that we've had 10, 15, 20 people in our homes. And just so you know that your investment is worth it, since we started doing this, we, we started this group about a year and a half ago doing these dinners. Now there are 14 groups doing these dinners. And um, we've been able to baptize 25 adults uh, just simply by since we've started this process of just finding where people are and asking them if they want to take the next step. And that is a credit to to your support. Of course, God gets all the glory, but he's used you in that. And I want to say thank you. You made a real difference in our ministry and in our lives. So with that being said, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about um, something maybe that we all struggle with. I know it's a, a stressful time and school is starting. And, and I think that during this time of transition, going back to school, we need to... Um, Make sure that we are right with the Lord. Um, make sure that we've got everything kind of cleaned up in that relationship with him. So we're going to talk about Psalm 51 today. Um, it's one of my favorite psalms. And, and we're going to talk about how to you know, think, feel, talk about sin, our sin. Because it's something that I think we struggle with. Um, we're, we're actually not very good at apologizing um, to one another. I noticed that through these memes. If you can put the memes up there, we'll go straight there. We, our generation, I think, created the non-apology, but um, the next two slides, yeah, the next one over. Um, uh, these are different forms of not apologizing. And what I'd like for you to do is I'm going to read these, and if you've ever apologized like this before, why don't you just raise your hand? Just a little confession time, if this is ever how you've done So, Sorry for that mean, hurtful, accurate things I said about you. If you've ever apologized like that, okay, we've got a pastoral couple here. Sorry for you misinterpreted my brilliant joke as horribly offensive. Is that you? Um, my apologies for being condescending. By the way, that means to treat as inferior, if you've ever apologized like that. My deepest apologies for whatever it is you think I should be apologizing for. Listen, every husband in here has done that. Every, we said, I don't know what I'm sorry for, baby, but I'm sorry. Um, uh, the next one, you know, this is the old man apology. Sorry for being myself. Um, or I, I'm strongly considering apologizing to the, the almost apology, but that's not quite there. Right. Or I'm sorry. And by sorry, I mean, get over it. I think that is the mother of teenagers. Every mother of teenagers has used that apology. And I'm sorry we fought. I hate it when you're wrong. Um, <laughs> I think my wife has said that to me a few times. And, and so we, we struggle with apologies. We offer up a lot of non-apologies anyway, uh, a lot of times. And, and why is that? Why do we struggle so bad with saying we're sorry when we screw up? I mean, we, we've got the thank yous down. We've got the your welcomes down and congratulations. Those are all social conventions, social interactions. Like, but why do we struggle with apo- apologizing? I'm going to let you answer that. Just take a second with your neighbor and talk with them and talk to each other. Why do we struggle with apologizing for things that we've done? Go ahead and do that. Talk to your neighbor now.
What did you come up with? Yeah, someone tell me something. Why, why do we struggle apologizing? Pride, huge part of it, right? What else? Anybody else? Did you hear that? The, the person you're apologizing to will use your apology to smash your head over and over again. Yeah, trust. Trust issues, right? Um, that you're making yourself vulnerable when you apologize. Yeah. Yeah, fear that somehow the dynamics will change um, in your relationship if you apologize, if you make yourself vulnerable, if you admit that you're wrong. Anybody else? I'm not looking for one answer. I just want to hear your answers. Stubbornness. Yeah, and that tied into pride. Yeah, you know, apologies involve relationships, which are always complicated. They involve passions because there's no hurt if there's no passion. Um, And that's complicated. They involve conflict, pain, vulnerability, all things that we don't do so well. And we need a guide. We need a guide on how to apologize to one another, but also how to apologize to God. How to talk about our sin when we've offended him. Um, And the Bible is our guide. And Psalm 51 is a great, great guide for that. um, On how to think, feel, and talk about your sin. And so we're going to dive in a little bit. But before we do, um, do you remember the occasion of Psalm 51? Why did uh, David even write that psalm? What, What was the sin he was coming out of? Do you remember? Sorry. Yeah, his, his relationship with Bathsheba. And listen, um, sometimes we kind of whitewash that story a little bit, but essentially um, David wrote Psalm 51 after this sin with Bathsheba, which essentially was a rape and the murder of her husband uh, to cover it up. It's a big deal. But, but listen, David didn't see it that way because he was king. And he's probably thinking, and he's playing this game of rationalizing and minimizing sin. A game that I've played really often, and maybe you've played it too. That after we sin, we, we kind of talk ourselves into thinking it's not so bad. And he's thinking, well, I'm king. I mean, what woman wouldn't want to be with me? So is it really that bad? And, and listen, her husband was a soldier, and he died in battle. I mean, that's what happens with soldiers, even though David coordinated very intentionally that death. And so he's playing this game of just rationalizing, minimizing his own sin. And he's kind of put it in the past. And all of a sudden, this prophet, Nathan, comes to him and said, No, David, you've sinned. You've sinned. And you need to spend some time thinking about this and talking to God about this. And and a really important note, too, before we just jump in, um, is I wanted to let you know that as soon as Nathan rebuked David and, and David took a responsibility and says, I have sinned before the Lord, that Nathan actually says, um, you know, your sin has been removed. You will not die. And so at that moment, Nathan kind of tells him, listen, you're not going to pay for the sin with your life. And in fact, if you remember the story, someone innocent was going to pay for David's sin. And uh, I think that makes this very highly relatable to us who are Christians. Um, because we're in that same paradigm, right? That we sin, um, but in relationship with, with Jesus Christ, you know, God has told us uh, that our sin is forgiven, um, that someone innocent is paying for that sin, that is Christ. And so I tell you that because I want you to realize that David is not talking about his sin in a particular way to get out of trouble. He's not talking about it in a way so that God would take it easy on him. Nathan's already told him that your sin has been removed and you will not die because of this. He's just speaking about his sin because it hurts. 
it hurts that he hurt God. Um, and in that way, you know, David is dealing with the sin from a position of already being forgiven. That is our situation too as Christians. We are dealing with our sins in a position of already being forgiven. And, and it's worth the time, though, to learn how to do that properly. Not to just say, hey, because I am forgiven, I don't really have to think about it or deal with it. And I think Psalm 51 gives us a really great guide. So last thing before we just jump in is taking a little time to define sin. Um, sin is always, always a relational offense. It's not an isolated mistake. It's not a, a goof up or a slip up that's, you know, just in its own little bubble. But it's always a relational offense. And, and, and sin is any attitude or action that puts distance between where you should be and where God wants you to be. Or any action or attitude that, that puts distance between who you are and who God wants you to be. Sin is always something that's wedging into a relationship. And that's how you have to remember um, when you think about sin, that it's, it's always a relational offense. So we're going to jump in now, and we're going to look at some of this. But oddly, instead of starting at the beginning, I want to start in the middle. There's two verses in the middle of, um, of Psalm 51 that I think kind of are the anchor text for it. I think when we look at these two verses, they're, they're truths that kind of inform the rest of the chapter. And so we're going to start with verse 5 and, and verse 6. And I want to show you two things. These are the only two beholds in Scripture, and we have a screen for that too. Um, the only two beholds in Scripture, I mean, in, in Psalm 51, sorry, in that chapter, are, are 5 and 6 where he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then he also says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, you being God, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So he's got two beholds here. And, and what he's doing is he's lifting up these two truths, and, and he's asking God, please consider these. But he's asking his reader as well, here are two truths that we need to consider. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and, and you teach me wisdom in your secret heart, in, in the secret heart. And these two beholds um, kind of form the rest of the chapter. And the, and the first one, that first behold about being brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. That's not a slight on his mother. He's not saying he was a bad baby inside of the womb, you know, smoking and cursing inside of there. <laughs> He's saying, look, as far back as I can remember, I've, I've always been messed up. As far back as I can remember, I've always been prone to sin. I've always committed these relational offenses. And uh, he's saying I'm messed up and I'm, I was born into a messed up, world and it's messing me up even more and, and by implication that verse is saying I, I can't do anything to get myself out of this I was born into this so that's the first truth that he holds up it's the first behold and the second one he says behold you God delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart and this is a truth about God this is something he notices about God himself you know, you know the first one is when I look at myself this is what I see but when I look at you God this is what I see and I see that you, you delight in truth in my inward being. That, that phrase, inward being, actually means like the reins of my soul. It's, it's, it's who I really am. You delight in truth in there, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So he's, he's got these two truths that he holds up. If you go to the next slide, you can see it. It's just there um, that he's always holding up. And I think as he's 
talking about these seemingly conflicting truths that I messed up and there's nothing I can do about it, but you, God, you take pleasure in in bringing me up out of this mess. Uh, These two truths, as they collide, they form the chapter, Psalm 51. And and we're going to talk about that and and see how it influences that. So I want to dive in a little bit deeper with you into that first truth. The one where David is saying, look, when I look at myself, I realize I'm, I'm a messed up person, born into a messed up world and getting more messed up by the day. And, and there's nothing I can do to get myself out of that mess. Um, I had a friend named Daniel Grau. Uh, Daniel was from Spain. He was what we call a gallego. And in Argentina, we tell gallego jokes. I didn't know that. Like... Uh, until my parents started telling me Gajigo jokes. And in Canada, we tell Newfie jokes. I don't know why. It's people from Newfoundland. They seem like great people to me. But in Canada, they tell Newfie jokes. At, you know, in the States, they usually tell Polish jokes, which is weird because I'm a quarter Polish. And I've been to Poland. They're all smart people. Um, and in Texas, they tell Aggie jokes. Aggie jokes. Yeah. I was thinking, are there any Aggies here? Yeah, obviously. For sure. Okay. I'll, I'll speak slowly. Um <laughs> So, you know, we've got this uh, uh, gallego in our life named Daniel, and he's telling us a story about how in the early 80s he was driving his station wagon. He got a flat tire, and uh, he, he, he was thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And if you show the next slide, i got a couple of pictures. The jack on the left is kind of what you see today in most cars, right? But do you know the jack on the right is what they used to put into cars? You know what that's called? Does anybody, it's a bumper jack. And so that used to be what was in most cars. And, and so he's got a flat tire. He's on the side of the road with this huge station wagon. And he has a bumper jack in the back, except that he's missing the base. I don't know if all of you can see it, but there's a little base there. But he's a guy, Joe. He's like, hey, what? No big deal. It'll still work. So he takes that jack, and he attaches it to the car, and he starts, you know, puts the mechanism in the shaft, and then puts the crowbar in there. Every time it clicks, you know, that little mechanism is riding up, and, and he's going for a long time, and, and nothing is happening. He's going for a really long time, and he's thinking, I can hear it. It's going, but nothing's happening. The car's not moving. It's not going up. Any of you car guys know what is happening? Yeah. In that soft asphalt there, that, that shaft is just burying itself into the ground. And all of a sudden, and then I realize, oh, this is why they tell gajeko jokes. Um, all of a sudden, Daniel's got two problems. You know, his, his car is flat and his jack is halfway in the ground and, and he's stuck because he didn't have what he needed to get himself out. That's you and I. We're in that position. We were born into this messy world. And you know, listen, we just don't have the tools to kind of get ourselves out of it, to get unstuck, to, to get ourselves out of this mess. That's you and I, and that's what David is saying. And, and I think sometimes we struggle with that. You know, we, we kind of know, well, I know I'm imperfect, but, you know, I've fixed my, fixed my own messes before. But in reality, no, you haven't. We've been able to mask some things in our lives, but we don't have the ability to fix what's really wrong with us. And some of you might be thinking, look, you're, you're overstating your case a little bit. You're, you're exaggerating. You know, I know no one's perfect, but I'm really not that messed up. And, and let me just... Nudge your thinking on that for a little bit, if I could. Um, Sometimes when we say I'm not that messed up, what we're really saying is compared to other people, I'm not that messed up. And and you're right. 
if we were each other's reference point, we're not that messed up compared to one another. Everybody's got a friend that when you tell them something you did wrong, they kind of respond, that ain't nothing. And they'll tell you what they did or someone else did to try to make you feel better. We're funny that way. When we confess things to one another, sometimes we say, well, this person's worse, just to make ourselves feel better, to make you feel more not messed up. And, and listen, if, if we were each other's reference point, that would be true. We're just us. But you know, sin is, is not about us uh, where we are compared to where other people are, but it's, it's where we are compared to where God wants us to be. Not about comparing ourselves to one another, but to kind of realize that we've had a relational offense against God that we don't really have the ability to fix. I, I want to read, go back now and start reading from the beginning of the chapter. In verse 1, David realizes that it's not really about anybody else at this moment. Take a look at these pronouns that he starts using. Starting in verse 1, we have it on the screen. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And it is against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Did you notice the pronouns on there? If you didn't, I underlined it before you. Um, it's all me, my, I, you, yours. There's no he, she, they, Bathsheba, Uriah, Bob, my neighbor. There's nobody there. It's just him and God. And he realizes how deeply personal sin is between him and God. Even to the point that, you know, we look at some of what he says and he says, you know, um, against you, you only have I sinned. And it just doesn't sound right because what about all the other people that are affected by sin? But he understands that sin is a, is a wedge. It's, it's a relational fence in his relationship with God because every time we sin, any sin, Anytime we sin with any sin, this is what we're saying to God. We're saying, God, I don't trust you. God, I want better than you. God, I don't care about the things you care about. Every time we sin, we're saying that to God. I don't trust you. I want better than you. And I don't care about the things that you care about. Whether we're lying or whether we're a convicted murderer like my pastor, which is not a phrase you get to say very often, right? It doesn't matter which sin it is. See, the action is not what makes us messed up. The, the activity is not what messes us up. The activity just exposes the attitude that we have that we don't trust God, we want better than him, and we don't care what he cares about. And let me ask you something. What relationship can survive that? What marriage can survive one partner saying to another, I don't trust you, I want better than you, and I don't care what you care about? What relationship can survive that? None. I don't think a relationship can survive one of those, nevertheless, like all three. And yet that's exactly what we say when we sin. It exposes just how messed up we are. And we don't really have the ability to stop from doing that. Not on our own. When you lie, just as an example, what you're saying is, God, I don't trust you to take care of me if I tell the truth. When you lie, you say, God, this lie will give me something better than you. 
when you lie, you're saying, God, I don't care if you love truth. I'm going to lie anyway. Do you see how it works? Sin is a relational offense, and it's so deeply personal, and it exposes this rift, this poison that we introduce into our relationship that needs addressing. And, and, you know, again, still at this point, some of you may be saying, well, okay, I understand how, that it's not about comparing yourself to other people, but, you know, I, I really just don't think I'm that messed up. You know, I, I, I just live a boring life. And, and sometimes I think when we say I'm not that messed up, what we're really saying is the me that I allow people to see is not that messed up. Even though there's a me that we hide uh, and we know that it's pretty broken. And, and listen, that's totally natural. It's totally natural for you to want to present a version of yourself that, that people can see and then present a version of yourself that you kind of hope no one does see. That, that's just discretion. That's normal. Um, but let's be real. They're both you. You know, uh, just think about it. What if uh, we magically had a transcript of every thought you've had in the last 24 hours? Think about it. Every single thought was either written down or there was a picture of it. And, and we just had a transcript of it, and, and we had it for the last 24 hours for you. Who would you let read that? No one. Not a soul. You'd burn that thing, wouldn't you? You'd lock it in some deep safe. You'd be so scared because, uh, listen, there, there's always a part of us that we're hiding from other people. But what, what David knows is that, like, when I'm talking with God, I, there's no hidden file. There's nowhere to put the part of me that I'm ashamed of. It's all me in front of the Lord. And that's why he's able to say with a lot of confidence and honesty, I know that I'm messed up. I know that I can't help myself. And and if you look at verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He he says, "I'm, I'm, I'm right here, right in front of my sin. It's staring me in the face and I can't compartmentalize it anymore. It's, it's right there, Lord. Would you help me? He's not hiding anymore. And let me tell you, um, because I've been through this, it's freeing to be able to just make that claim. I'm a messed up person, born into a messed up world, getting messed up day by day, but, and I can't help myself. It is freeing to finally admit that instead of being a slave to maintaining the, the hidden me. And I think David feels freed by this confession, and I think you should too. I know it, it sounds like we're just talking about, hey, just admit that you stink and you're horrible, and let's all go home and cry about it. But listen, there's something very freeing about saying we are messed up people. We would be a gloomy faith, though, if it stopped there. We, we would be a gloomy faith if, if all God wanted for us was to be honest about ourselves and say, yeah, we are messed up. That would be a gloomy faith, but we don't have a gloomy faith. We have an incredible faith. And, that, and that's where the second truth is, is not more bad news, but it's good news. That's where, you know, the first one's just saying I messed up, but the second truth is saying God takes pleasure in pulling me out of a mess. And, and, and listen, right after that, that verse where he says, you know, you delight in truth in my inward being and, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart, all of a sudden the chapter starts to pivot to hope. And redemption. And it's amazing. Let's look at it together. The next verse, verse 7. David starts to say with confidence in in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He's talking about the same person himself. He's saying, I messed up. I was born wicked. 
But now he's saying, if you purge me with hyssop, Lord, I know I will be clean. I will be whiter than slow. He has confidence in what the Lord can do for him. He has confidence that God's character enjoys pulling him out of this mess. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Listen, in in all those verses, you you see mention of, uh, of God. You see mention of the Holy Spirit. But can I tell you something? All of these verses are about what Jesus Christ has done for us. There are probably no more six verses in Scripture, in in Old Testament, that just scream Jesus. Because this is what he does for us. If if you look at the beginning where it says, purge me with hyssop, they're not using arbitrary language. He's not just picking a random plant. The the hyssop was uh, some hyssop branches. They would collect them and put them in a bundle and, and they would dip them in blood. And, and any house that had any kind of disease or pestilence, they would go and, and take these hip, hyssop branches, dip it in the blood, and sprinkle that blood on that house. And all of a sudden, that house was cleansed. No more disease. No more sickness. No more suffering. Uh, in, in the Passover, they used hyssop branches to get the, the blood of the Passover lamb and, and, and paint it on their door, on their doorposts. This is saying, what, what, what David is saying is, Lord, uh, sprinkle me with the blood of the lamb. I mean, he doesn't even know about Jesus Christ yet, but he's saying, sprinkle me with the blood of the lamb. And, and remember, we used to sing songs like that a long time ago in church about, are you washed in the blood? And it sounds so freaky to outsiders. That's why we stopped singing them, right? Because it's just kind of cultish. We, we washed in the blood. I just took a shower. And like... But it's true, our, our faith, our theology says that we are washed in Christ's blood. And, and, and also in the same verse, the wash me. This, can you show the next slide about the t-shirt? When we think about washing some clothing, this is usually what we think about sunshine, a beautiful shirt. Don't you just want to like get into that shirt right there? It's so fresh and smell it. But listen, the word there about wash me is, is actually to clean by beating, pounding, or treading on a stone. I mean, this is a brutal process. And David's saying, listen, Father, I know that you delight in bringing me out of this mess, but I also know it is a bloody beating of a process. And the good news for us is that Jesus Christ spilled his blood. He took our beating. He's assumed that for us, and, and then continue to look, you know, in the scriptures, it says, in verse 10, it says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That is what Jesus Christ does for us. He, he does all of these things that we see in the scriptures. David knows that he, God can take him out of his sin. What he doesn't know yet is that he's going to do it for all of us through Jesus Christ. So, um, I want you to be the kind of person that when you consider your sin, uh, you're able to hold up two truths. And one saying, you know, I'm a messed up person, and I know that, and I admit that, and I'm free to admit that. But another truth that you can hold up is say, God delights in getting me out of this sin. And, and 
listen, we, we want to be people of grace. We want to talk about how God wants to forgive us, but we can't get there unless we can make that first admission that we need his help. When I was in um, sixth grade, I was in a math class, and uh, I did pretty well in math. I was, I was a good student. And, um, but every once in a while, I would suffer. You know, I'd, I'd struggle a little bit, and, and we had one of those days where the parents could come talk to the teacher, and so my parents went and talked to my teacher and said, how's Seba doing? And, you know, my, the teacher was like, he's doing great, uh, except that we noticed that when we do our homework questions, he never raises his hand for help. Because, see, the, the, the process that we had was that we would all do homework, we'd all pull out our homework, and the teacher would start reading the answers. And if you got the answer wrong, you were supposed to raise your hand, and someone would come check what you did wrong. And so she would always read the answers to all these questions, and I would never raise my hand to admit that I got one wrong. And it wasn't because I didn't get any wrong. I was just embarrassed. So my dad, who was a very clever guy, he says, I got a plan. So the next day I'm there in math class and the teacher says, hey, we're going to do something different today. We're going to, uh, we're going to let Sebastian pull out his homework and he's going to read every answer on his page. I was like, okay. It's like, thanks, dad. Appreciate that. So I start reading and he says, tell us the answer to number one. I, was, I don't remember what it was, seven. She's like, oh, that's right. Okay, tell us the answer to number two. Well, three. Oh, that's right. And I got the third one right. And I got the fourth one right. And I got the fifth one right. And all of a sudden, this roll starts happening. Six right, seven right, eight right. And I can hear the kids around me just kind of whispering, like, what's going on? How's he doing that? Eight right, nine right, ten right, eleven right. And, and I'm, I'm just hearing, like, I could just sit, be there like in my homework and I'm hearing, Seba. You know, I mean, it's not really happening, but it's happening in my head. And, and, you know, 12 right, 13 right, 14 right. I, remember I was nervous about 15. I got it right, and it was just almost there. 16 right, 17, 18, 19, 20. I got them all right, and in my head I was just dancing. And, the, the, you know, the, everybody was applauding it. None of that was really happening. It's just in my head it was happening. And um, I remember just thinking, I don't need your help. I don't need your help. Celebrating. I can't tell you how much that attitude has hurt me in life. How that one victory that day set up a years of just thinking, I don't need people's help. And and I lived a lot of my life thinking, I don't I don't need other people's help. I, I just wouldn't ask and I would pretend that I could handle everything, I could do it, that I wasn't this incredible mess, but I was just someone who could pull myself out of any mess I was in. And God broke me of that through some really painful circumstances, through quite a little washing, quite a little beating. Uh, And I hope that you'll get there one day too. Uh, If you haven't already, where you just realize, I am the mess that David claims to be, that's me too. But God, you delight in helping people out of their mess. Listen, when I've been dealing with my own sin lately and, I, you know, a thought pops in my head that's just uh, so dumb, so sinful. I, I, I actually do this. I'm not lying. I, I raise one hand and say, I'm so sinful. But then I raise the other and say, but you love getting me out of this sin. And I hope you could do that too. Can I pray with you? Uh, Father, thank you so much for the chance to share your word. Thank you for the chance to share about uh, sin and, and, and what it does to us, but also how we should talk about it, how we should, and Lord, just admit that we need your help. 
Lord, thank you because at the same time that you ask us to be honest about ourselves, you ask us to take a deep look into your character and realize that you want to pull us out of that sin. Thank you for that. And Lord, I love the way that your truth eclipses our truth. It overwhelms our truth. Lord, through Jesus Christ, your love eclipses our sin. Thank you for that. And we know that that came at a high price. We know that that came through the shedding of blood. Lord, help us to just honestly admit we need your help and then have confidence that you enjoy helping us. And we have all the restoration, the redemption, the forgiveness we need in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Creek Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us, please visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Thank you.